I want to talk about uh, managing your strength. And actually, I shared much of this message on a Sunday night, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago. But if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 4, I really feel like there's, there's um, something I want to share, add to what I shared already, and, um, and also just reinforce where I feel like we are as a people. And, you know, we've had, um, we've had, we have so much favor on our lives right now. Um, and not just individually, but corporately. That, you know, people, I was sharing in first service, you know, you could have a sewing class here and a hundred people would show up to it. I'm serious. I mean, you, anything you do, and I, I remember, you know, when we would travel and uh, we would, you know, go, go to different churches like we do now. I mean, a really big, a, a large gathering was 150 or 200 people. We're like, wow, 200 people came, you know, to, to, to hear us and, or uh, come to our, you know, or be ministered to. And, you know, now we go places and, you know, nearly every place we go is packed. And, you know, God just has so totally blessed us. And I and I want to I just I want us to really think through. Sometimes you don't know what you have until it's gone. And I I want us to think through the favor that's on our life. And there's a verse. uh, I'll probably read it again later on in the message. But in Proverbs that says this. In fact, I'll read it first in New American Standard. It says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded him. Here's the Message Bible. I love the way the Message Bible puts this. The purity of, I'm sorry, the purity of silver and gold is tested by putting them in the fire. The purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. I want to read it to you again. The purity of silver and gold is tested by putting them in the fire. The purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. And I, I, I really am being challenged in my own heart that what got us to this place in God is the same thing that's going to keep us here. And sometimes what happens is that we begin to forget what got us here and we begin to, as Danny shared so, so well today in the offering, we... we, we we stop giving sacrifices because we don't feel like we need to. As, you know what I'm trying to say? Like when you're broke, like you kind of need to pray, and and you're you're kind of you know you kind of need to give. And, and it's I don't know why, but some people think you know um, it's a lot harder to give when you don't have money. And I'm like I don't know about that actually. I think as a Christian, I think you're much more aware that this this um, this ministry of reciprocity where I give and it's given to me, that seems to be more relevant in my mind. Like, I'm definitely in a place to, that, I, that I need I need God to come through. I need $1,000 for my bills. If I took all the money I'm going to make this month, it's only $500. That I'm going to be short no matter what I do. And it's probably okay to give away 100 because I'm short anyway. But something happens when you come into abundance that... that you start to think, well, you know, you start to think about your, your 401k and your, your, you know, your retirement and, and that sort of thing. And suddenly you have things and you, you come to this place in life where you don't want to take a risk anymore. You know, when you start a business and we started our business when we were young and we, you know, we didn't have anything. We didn't own our own house. We didn't have anything. And so when we started our own business, it's like, you know, so you take a risk and you go broke. What are they going to take from you? Your 20-year-old car and your furniture that you made in, 
in, in wood shop when you're in high school. Do you know what I'm saying? But when you start to accumulate, not, and I'm not, I'm, just, I'm not just talking about things, but it's easy to illustrate as things. When you start to accumulate things, and suddenly, you know, or over time, you know, you, you, you start to think, I've got to protect my things. I've got to make sure, you know, if I, if I open that business, or I do that ministry, or I say that thing, I could, I could lose something. Like, I actually have something to lose. And... Over time, what happens is I begin to play the game, if you will. Instead of to win, I begin to play to not lose. And because I lose sight, oftentimes, of how I got here in the first place. And I think that it's really important that we, Bethel, and our movement, and probably movements all over the world, I'm only speaking to us because I only have us to speak to. And I, and I, and I feel like the Lord's given me a, a voice and a, and a place to speak into our family. So I don't know what's happening in the whole world, but I'm concerned about our family. And so if you, if you, you're probably at Exodus, this story um, I shared two weeks ago. Then Moses, Moses is interacting with God and, and God is telling Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So this is the story. And he says to God, in fact, we'll just read it here. He says to God, then Moses said, what if he, what if they will not believe me or listen to me, listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And the Lord said that they may believe. That they may believe that the Lord... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. This is a great story, and there's, there's, lots of, there's lots to tell in the story. But a couple of things really, I think, are really relevant to us. First of all, that stick that Moses has in his hand, when God says, what do you have in your hand? And he says, My, a staff, a stick. He, he's not just saying, you know, he's not just saying, like, yeah, I got, a, I got a walking stick in my hand. He's telling God, God said, what do you have in your hand? He's, he's, he's a shepherd. He's been shepherding for 40 years. He's telling God, I have, I'm a shepherd. That's what I'm good at. And God says, take that shepherd thing that you're good at and throw it down. And he throws it down and you know it becomes a snake. And Moses must have been a poisonous snake. Obviously Moses living 40 years in the wilderness would have seen snakes. He runs for the snake and God says to him, go back to that snake and grab it by the tail. He picks that snake up by the tail and it turns back into a staff. And I'd like to propose to you, first of all, that that staff always was a snake. That what you're good at will come back to bite you. And that your greatest weakness is your strength overemphasized. Your greatest weakness is, is your inability to realize that what you're really good at and the season that you're in that's prosperous is actually has not very much to do with you at all. And you begin to think you can do it. I've done this for 40 years. What I have in my hand, I, listen, I don't want to go to Pharaoh, but what I have in my hand, I am good at. I know how to do sheep. God goes, you better throw that down. And when he throws down what he's good at, it turns into a snake and he runs from it. And I can just see God going, Moses, that thing you're running from, you've been carrying it for 40 years and it could have bit you any time. And I think it's important for us to realize that opportunity may knock only once, but temptation leans on the doorbell. 
Are you with me? It's important that we learn to manage our appetites. That we, that we learn to manage our seasons. Our seasons of life. We're, we're called as Christians. We're, we're called to be led by a rudder. Not, not, not driven by a whip. The goal isn't that we would live in these cycles where, I don't mean season doesn't happen, seasons don't happen in cycles, but I don't think, see, I think that famine follows misused wealth. I think sometimes we wind up in famine because when we became wealthy, we stopped sowing into the next thing and we got comfortable with where we're at. And, and, I, and I want us to remember why we're here. There's a, a great story in 2 Kings. If you want to turn there, it's chapter 5. I'm going to tell you the story because it's, it's really a long story. And it begins with Elijah. You remember Elijah and Elisha? And by the way, for some of you that are, we have lots of new believers with us. Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, they are actually two different guys. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but I didn't know that for a long time. I'd read the stories and I'm like, well, you know, they spelt their name wrong in some, some of the books. And I kind of realized like, oh, this is actually two different guys. And you remember the story that Elijah is, he meets God in the cave and God says to Elijah when he's depressed and discouraged, listen, one of the things you need is a friend and you need a successor. You need, how many of you know everybody needs a friend and a successor? And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to go down and I want you to throw your mantle on Elisha who's the younger, and, it, and I want you to anoint him as prophet in your place. And so he goes down, and Elisha is, is uh, he's plowing with 12 uh, oxen, 24 oxen actually, and Elijah walks down and throws his mantle on Elisha, and Elisha starts running after Elijah, and Elijah turns to Elisha and said, what did I do to you? All he did is throw, I mean, he didn't throw his coat on him and say, this is the mantle of the, you know, here's the, you're the next prophet. You know, he just throws his coat on him and walks away. And Elijah runs out, Elisha runs after him and says, my master, my master, wait, let me go bury my parents and I'll follow you. And Elijah turns to Elisha and says, what did I do to you? And Elijah, Elisha goes back and he cuts up his 24 oxen and he offers them to the Lord and he follows Elijah which is right along with what Danny was sharing this morning. Lots of bull. But the point is this. He had to give... You know, those, those weren't just 24 oxen. What he had to do is throw down his staff. He had to throw down his ability to provide for himself. He had to, if you will, he had to burn his bridges to follow God. Are you with me? He, it wasn't like, well, if it doesn't work out with Elijah, I can always go back. You know, I've got my tools of the trade. I got my oxen and I got a farm. No, nobody told him to do this. He just sacrificed his career to follow his ministry. Are you with me? And by the way, if you have a career that isn't a ministry, you should sacrifice it. If you have a job, you should quit it. Everybody in this room should not have a job. You should have a ministry. Go back to the same place, but work for a different boss. And spread the kingdom wherever you go. I hope you got that. If you're working at McDonald's, don't quit McDonald's. Just 
work for the kingdom. Bring the kingdom there. Flip burgers in the name of Jesus. And so anyway, so the story goes on. So he throws his mantle on Elijah, on Elisha, and Elisha follows him. And, and you know the story. Obviously, he gets his mantle back because at the end of Elijah's ministry, they, the prophets, the sons of the prophets begin to tell Elisha, hey, do you know your master is going? And Elisha says, yes, but don't say anything. And so finally, him and Elijah, Elisha and Elijah are walking along. This is the day that he knows that the Lord's going to take Elijah up and he turns to Elijah and he says, would you grant me a wish? And Elijah said, what is it? He said that I would have a double portion of your mantle. Elijah says to him, that's a hard thing, but I'll tell you what I'll do. If you see me when I go up, you can have it. And what I love about this is after he tells him that he tries to ditch him. (laughs) He tries to ditch him. (laughs) Listen, there's a message behind this. He tries to ditch him. See, how many of you know that fire always falls on sacrifice, not on convenience? He tries to ditch Elisha, and he says, I've got to go to the bathroom and across this river. <laughs> Wait here, he says, Elisha's like, no, no, I'm with you. And so the short story is, is that Elisha, Elijah does go up in the, behind this chariot, and his mantle falls. And when Elijah goes up, Elisha says, my father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel... Did you notice he didn't say, he, you notice he didn't say, my prophet, my prophet, or my teacher, my teacher. I believe the prophetic movement was always supposed to be a family affair. That's why in Malachi it says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, and he will turn back the, the hearts of fathers to sons and the hearts of sons to fathers. I don't, think prophetic move, I don't think prophetic ministry should happen outside of family. I don't mean it shouldn't happen in the mall. I just mean it should be, I just mean it should, there should be accountability. And account for your ability amongst the family. You know, in the Old Testament, they judge nations. In the New Testament, we judge prophecy. And so, anyway, so Elijah, so the mantle falls. Elisha picks up the mantle. He walks to the Jordan River and he says, where is the God of Elijah? And he strikes the river and the river parts and the sons of the prophets are standing on the other side of the river, and they say the mantle that was on Elijah is now on Elisha. And Elisha begins to carry that mantle. And how many of you know that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? When God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He isn't saying, I'm only the God of three people. (laughs) There's seven billion people on the planet. Listen, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know who you guys are worshiping, but don't let it be me. Because I already have three guys I'm a God over. No, no. God's saying, I'm a multi-generational God. I'm the God who thinks tri-dimensionally. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you following me? So God, so, so Elijah passes his mantle to Elisha, and Elisha has a double portion. Are you with me? Elisha takes on a, he takes, he, he begins to men, mentor this young man, Gehazi, and, and, and it is his Elisha, if you will. And he begins to train Gehazi. And Gehazi is his armor bearer, his servant, if you will. And he's following Elisha. And in the meantime, Elisha Elisha, um, prays for this woman, builds this relationship with this woman, this man. And he prays for her to have a son. You remember this? She couldn't have a son. She miraculously has a son. Then the son dies. This whole story. Then Elisha raises him from the dead. Do you remember all of this? Okay, so... 
So that all happens. And in the meantime, the, there's a there's a king who um, who has a who has a, a servant. I'm sorry, a captain of his army. And his name's Naaman. And he's a leper. This is in Second Kings chapter five, verse 10. He's a leper. This enemy king. Am I am I hard to follow right now? Because I feel like I'm hard to follow. Okay. Maybe I'm the one who's confused. This captain who's very famous, Naaman is his name. It says that God was with him, even though he's an enemy, even though his, his nation is an enemy of Israel. It says that God was with this captain named Naaman. The only problem is, is that Naaman had leprosy. They had done some raids. The Armenians had done some raids on the Israelites and they had taken a young girl as a POW. She ends up in Naaman's house. Is this clear? She ends up, this, this slave ends up in Naaman's house and Naaman is a leper. And she tells Naaman's wife, wow, too bad you weren't in Israel because in Israel there are prophets who heal leprosy. Naaman hears about it, goes to his king and says, they heal leprosy in Israel. The king of the Armenians takes, gives, gets an offering of gold and silver that equals $9 million, sends Naaman to see the Israeli king and says, we'd love to give you this offering. Can you heal? Because we, we know you, you heal leprosy. And the Israeli king's like, we, what the heck? We heal what? Where did you get that idea? And he thinks that the Armenians are just trying to, you know, they're, they're enemies. So he's like, this is trying to, he's just trying to trick us and have some reason to attack us. And so he gets scared and rips his clothes and says to the servant of Naaman, who but God can heal leprosy? Well, Elijah, Elisha finds out that the king rips his clothes and he sends word to the king and he says, hey, send them to my house. And, we'll, and then they'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman, so you, hear, you know the story, right? So, so Naaman comes to Elisha's house because Elisha sent a word to the king and said, send him to my house. I'll, I'll make sure he gets cured. Naaman comes with his $9 million, this entourage of people, ready to give this huge offering to the prophet because he's a leper. He gets to the door of Elijah's house, Elisha's house, and Elisha sends Gehazi out. Instead of going out himself and says, tell him to go dunk seven times in the Jordan River, he'll be fine. He'll be healed. Naaman is livid. You know, this man's the most famous man. He's the most famous commander among the Armenians. This man is... This man is like world famous. And the prophet doesn't even come out of the house. And so Naaman leaves and he's so mad. And he says, yeah, man, there's better water in Damascus. I mean, why would I go dip in the Jordan River? He's just totally ticked. He's just, he's just angry. He's just bitter. And he, he rides for a little while and his servant, you know, the servants are always smarter than the leaders. Have you noticed that? The servant says to the master, to, his, to Naaman, hey, I got a boss. Can I give you a little info here? It's just, I just had a thought. Why don't you go dip in the river, you know, like the guy said, because, I mean, hey, what's the worst that could happen? You get wet. 
And so Naaman's like, yeah, sir, maybe servant's right. So he goes down the Jordan River, and you know the story. He dips seven times. And when he gets up the seventh time, the Bible says that his skin is like a baby. He's totally transformed. Well, you can imagine if you live with leprosy. And he gets back on his horse, takes his entourage, and back to Elisha's house they go. And Elisha is standing on the front porch waiting for him. The son. And Naaman says to Elisha, I, I don't know what to say. I'm just, I'm well. I'm, I've come to bring you an offering. Just Nine million dollars worth of silver and gold. And Elisha said, you know, I don't, I actually can't take your money. You know, talk to God about it. Can't take your money. This is so powerful. And Naaman says, well, if you won't let me take your, if you won't take my money, can I please have two sacks of dirt from your front yard? So that when I go home and I go in to the, into the temple of the idols, that when I bow down, I could put the sacks of dirt on the ground and they think I'm bowing down to them, but I will serve the Lord, the God of Israel only. So would you grant me that I could take the dirt from this place and secretly serve the God of Israel? And Elijah grants him that, and he goes home. And he's heading home, and Gehazi, Gehazi waits till he gets a distance away, and Gehazi sneaks out the back door, and he catches Naaman, and he says to Naaman, hey, my master changed his mind. He'd like to have a little bit of your money. <laughs> and uh, he'd like to have some, some of your clothes that you offered and stuff. And of course, Naaman's like, what, how, take whatever you want. And of course, Gehazi takes some of his stuff, and he, instead of going back to his master's house, he goes home, he ditches his stuff, and he heads back to Elisha's house. And when he gets to the front door, Elisha's waiting for him. And he goes, Gehazi, where'd you go? He goes, I didn't go anywhere. He goes, oh no, you went somewhere. My heart went with you. My, my heart went with you. And he said to Gehazi, Gehazi, there's time to take money. And there's time to not take money. And the Lord said, it was not time to take money. And you took the money. And now from this day forward, you shall have leprosy. And instantly, Gehazi is covered with leprosy. Do you understand what's happening here? There was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was Elijah, Elisha, and Gehazi. Elijah had a single mantle anointing. I'm sorry, Elijah. Elisha had a double mantle anointing. Do you understand that this was to be an ever-increasing mantle? But what happened? Gehazi did not manage his appetite. Remember, when you sit at the table of a king, you put a knife to your throat. Least you desire his delicacies. And they deceive you. 
And Gehazi ends up with leprosy. Meantime, Elijah goes back to the woman that he prophesied the child. The child died. He rose him from the dead. All of this I told you earlier. And he says, get out of this country. There's going to be a famine. It's going to last seven years. Just go anywhere. Anywhere besides here. Because it's going to be famine here. And I want you to be okay. And at the end of seven years, I want you to come back. So there is a famine and she comes back. To the land after seven years. Second Kings chapter 8. She comes back. To the land. And she goes to see the king. So that she can have her land back. In the meantime. Gehazi. Who used to be. The servant of Elisha. Are you with me? Who's the successor. To a history maker. And who's supposed to be a history maker. Are you with me? Himself. He ends up. In the courts of the king. And he's telling this king. Of Damascus. The stories of Elisha. And the king is so intrigued. He's like tell me some more stories. And he's like oh yeah. He healed this guy. And he raised that guy from the dead. And he made this axe head float. And, and then he tells him this story. He says, and he said this woman couldn't have a child and Elisha prophesied to her she had this child and then when the child was, you know, 15 years old or whatever, the child died and, and the woman came back to my master and my master laid on the child and the child came to life and he's telling the story and the king is just blown away. The king just can't believe it. It's like all these stories hearing about wonders and signs and miracles. And just as he's finishing that story, the woman who Elijah said to come back, walks into the courtroom and says to the king, I'd like to have my land back that I left seven years ago. And the king's about to say, what? You left. You're done. And as he begins to give her decree, Gehazi goes, that's the woman. The woman I told you about in the story that had no child and a master and then rose up from the dead. That's the, that's the woman. And the king restores her land. Here's the point, though. Gehazi, who was called to be a history maker, winds up being a storyteller instead of a history maker. Instead of doing the works of Elisha, he's telling about him. Because he didn't know how to manage his appetite. He didn't know how to carry himself in a time of great favor. One of the saddest stories in the Bible. For years I haven't been able to read this verse without tears in my own private devotional time. It's Genesis 6, chapter, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And it says this. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth 
and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. I don't even know how that works into theology and God foreknowledge and sovereignty. And man, that just blows my mind. For I am sorry that I have made them. Next verse. But Noah. But Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Man, that verse has got to be the most powerful verse in the whole Old Testament. God said, I'm going to kill. I'm going to wipe out everything. I am so sorry I made man. And then he sees one guy. And it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. You know, favor is something you steward. I'm so concerned that we forget what God is here. And that we don't protect our innocence. I've probably shared five times on this subject in the last year. I am so concerned. You know, when we when we came to Bethel, or even before we came to Bethel, I mean, we never, and I'm not talking about just me, I'm talking about us, we never came here so we could have a big church. I mean, I, I'm glad we have lots of people here. God love you. Hope you stay. You find someplace better. I hope I bless you to do that too. I mean, never came here to, like, have a big school. I mean, we came here to change the world. I don't want to be satisfied with, wow, we got seven services. I mean, honestly, you know, that's awesome. You guys wear us out. (laughs) Man, I love all you. All you Bethel people, Bethel watching iBethel TV. I mean, people are amazing, but I I didn't come here to, like, have a big church. I didn't come here to have a big school. I came here because God promised that we were going to be a part of a movement that changed the world. I I don't want to care about money or, or how many... I don't want to measure our success by, wow, you know, we have so, you know, we go places all the time and like, well, how many people do you have in your church? And I, I mean, who gives a rip? I mean, I mean, the fact that our city is still hurting, that, that, our, that, our, that our state has a 12 point, you know, 12% unemployment rate, that people are in poverty all over the place, that, that morality is, is still, is, is, is growing. I mean, that, that troubles me. That's what we were born to change. Uh, you know, and, and, and the risk that we took to get here, we can't, you know, in football sometimes they, they get, they, one, of the, one team will get a lead, and then they say this all the time, say, they begin to play to not lose. I don't want to play to not lose. I want to play to win. And, I, you know, I have a nice house and nice cars and I have money. I don't care about that stuff. I wasn't, I'm not going to take that with me. I wasn't born to accumulate a bunch of stuff. I was born to change the world. I, I and and I, I don't want to think about like, well, if you go there, they give big offerings. I don't care how much offerings they I don't care what, if, I'm, if we go someplace, are they going to be a part of an army that changes the world? That's what I care about. I can tell you, you can ask me, that's what I care about. 
When I get invited someplace, I don't like, okay, well, how much, what are the offerings going to be? But, you know, I, I like to preach to more people than a little more, less people only because I can talk to more people and maybe more people will change the world. It doesn't impress me that buildings pack out. I don't get tired of speaking. I want to make a difference. I, I want to make it, I'm serious, I want to make a difference. That's my goal in life. I want to make a difference and I want to raise up, I want to be part of a team that raises up an army to make a difference. I love this community stuff we're doing. I love it because I think everything should come out of relationship. But you know what? You can have great relationships. But if you're not making, if you're not changing the world, ah, probably not. You and I are probably not going to have a great conversation. Because I'm not interested in just having friends. I'm having, I'm interested in making friends with people who are actually dangerous people and who want to take a risk. I get bored with people who want to talk about their 401k or how much money they're putting in the bank. Or, you know, what, I, I only care about that mostly for my children. I want to make sure that my children don't grow up in poverty. That means a lot to me. But not so they'll have money, but so they can not think about money so they can make a difference. I don't want them to spend their life having to make money. I want them to think about changing the world. I hope a president or, or, or a prime minister or something comes out of my loins just so I can say, and I can look from heaven and go, yeah, come on, do that. That's what we believe in. We want to make a difference. You know, I've had somebody several times, this person who... You know, is offered me is a, is a very wealthy person. I, I I think a billionaire. I've heard. I don't know that for a fact, but I've heard that. Who's invited me on several occasions over the last year to give prophetic insight and wants to fly me private jet to, and and you know I said we're too busy. I'm too busy to do that. I can't do that. And so then recently offered a large amount of money if you'll come. That makes me not want to go. I'm not going now. I'm not, I know I don't want to go for sure. Don't, I, I, I don't want to be a, a you know, P-R-O-F-I-T prophet. I want to do things for money. I mean, it's fine if you get rich doing what God told you to do. God bless your soul. And, you know, stop being jealous of people who have money and they're serving God and God bless them. People complain. If you're rich, if you're poor, they're like, "Where's your God?" If you're rich, they're like, "Where's your God?" God doesn't care what you have; He just cares what has you. But I, I you know, I told Beth, I can't go do that now. Now, even if I was thinking about it, I can't do it now. I can't, and I'm sure the I'm sure the person has a good heart. I just can't do stuff for money. Several five years ago, I laid on my couch and my son had been through a divorce my daughter had been through a nervous breakdown and I would I just completely crashed I just completely I completely got wore out and I laid on the couch for six months six months I almost didn't get off that couch maybe more than I don't know a couple hours a day couldn't get off the couch exhausted depressed I didn't think I'd ever use that word in my life depressed I was so depressed, I, I didn't want to kill myself, I just didn't want to live. And I just did that for about six months, but for the first four months was really, really bad. 
About the fifth month, I started to see a little twinkle little star. You know a twinkle little star? I started to see a little twinkle little star way off in the distance. And I started, I was, laying, I was by myself during the days, and I started saying out loud, you made a serious miscalculation, you should have killed me. Because now, I am not afraid to die. And my soul has never been for sale. My wife will tell you, I don't, have never done anything for money. And now, I'm not afraid to die. You should have killed me while you had a chance. Because when I get off this couch, when I get off this couch, you are going to be so sorry that you didn't kill me. And you are going to pay for every minute that you tormented my family. And I started writing a Spirit Wars book on a couch. I wrote, I wrote two chapters on a couch. I'm just mad. I'd use a different word, but doesn't preach. I was angry, and I was writing these words. And I'm like, you're going to be sorry. I'm going to tell everybody what it's like when you get them into the wilderness and you cannot kill them. I'm going to tell them what happens, because I intend to come off this couch in the power of the Spirit. I don't know who led me to this couch, but I know who's leading me off of it. And I want to say to you that we have to remember how we got here. Listen to me. I'm telling you, as a father, don't forget how you got here. Don't stop taking risks. Well, I got a lot to lose. You're going to go broke. You're going to go out of here naked anyway. I go places, you know, I mean, you go all over Europe and they have these beautiful cathedrals. And man, I'll tell you, I love them. I, I don't know what you think about them. People are like, oh, about Catholic Church. I'm like, man, those guys know how to build a building. I'm serious, man. I'd take that in a minute. I thought about leaving here and pastoring one of them cathedrals. <laughs> and, you know, those cathedrals were built in a season of revival. Now, I, I'm, you know, I'm not making any statements about the Catholic Church. I'm just trying to say God was moving. And if you think when God moves, everything is perfect and everybody's wonderful, you, you haven't studied what move of God. The only perfect movement there's ever been is Bethel's. <laughs> you guys know that's not true if you've been here for more than a week. But I mean, those beautiful buildings, you go in those beautiful buildings and there's nobody there. I've been there lots of Sundays in Spain, all over Europe, walking those buildings on a Sunday morning, there's thousands of seats, and you think, they didn't build those buildings for 30 people, man. They built those buildings because the crowds were coming, because people were hungry for God. You know, whatever their deal, they were hungry for God. They didn't maybe get it all right, but I don't think we got it all right either. And I go to those buildings, those beautiful buildings, that they're monuments to something that once was. And I'm concerned about, I don't want to be some story that somebody writes about a hundred years from now. I want to be a movement. I want to, I don't want to build a ministry, I want to build a legacy. 
Freedom, I mean, from slavery. You know what I meant. Wilberforce, this is the place. You know, I've been places where, where, where history's made. And you, you, we all have lately. You know, you go to Germany. We were in Churchill's house last year. And Churchill wasn't home. <laughs> we were in Churchill's house. And my, I'm walking. And we were, Danny and I and Sherry, we were together. And we're Churchill's house. And I got at Churchill's house. And we, we did the tour thing, and I got outside, and, and I, just, I just sat on the bench and wept. I'm like, this is where history happened right here. This is where a man turned to history. We'd be speaking German if it wasn't for this man. And I'm, I mean, that's, I don't want us to look back and just be a monument. I'm like, this was the beginning of a new era. This is the beginning of people who believe the kingdom could come and God's will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are the people who believe. Listen. You know, the people who used to not believe that we should make disciples of all nations, these people actually believed it. This is where it all started. I'm not saying it started with us. You know what I'm saying. I'm saying that we're part of a movement that actually says that the government, that his government should be ever increasing. And a hundred years from now, they look back at our movement and they're like, these are the people who actually believe we could do this stuff. That we could actually lead nations. That we could actually bring the kingdom. That the, the that Heaven could actually invade earth. The signs and wonders are supposed to be brought about by everybody. This is what I care about. And you should have killed me five years ago. Because now I don't just care about it. Now I'm mad about it. And I want to make sure that you aren't trying to protect your nice house or your beautiful car. Because I have a nice house, probably nicer than most of yours. I have a nice car. I got a horse now. The horse bit me yesterday. I taught him about the fivefold ministry. I taught the horse the fivefold ministry after he bit me. We came to an understanding. You won't bite me, I won't slap you back. I wasn't cruel to the horse, by the way, just for all of you. Although I hear they make pretty good meat. We have stuff. I don't care if you have stuff, it's all good. Listen, have stuff, it's all good. Nice stuff, it's all, really, honestly, it's all good to me. As long as this stuff doesn't have you. As long as you don't start playing to not lose. As long as you don't stop taking risks and realize what got you here. Would you stand? Thank you, God. That little timer thing works pretty good. It buzzed for a while before I paid attention to it, though. 
can't tell me what to do. I'm married. I already have someone telling me what to do. In a kind way. Would you put your hand on your heart, please? Oh, God, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for... We thank you for warriors, revivalists, men and women of God. And we thank you for children. <laughs> I thought I'd throw that in there as long as they're getting attention. Lord, I thank you for I thank you for giving us favor. I don't know how we got this favor. I don't know how we got it. But I know that you've given it to us to steward. And Lord, it feels like the days of Noah. When Noah had favor, Joseph had favor with you. Daniel had favor with you. God, may we do, may we protect our innocence and do a great job at watching over our heart with all diligence because we know that from it flow all the issues of life. Lord, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart. That you keep a, re- a renewed spirit in us. Lord, we just, we bless your people. We bless the people who are watching by iBethel TV. God, we, we bless what you're doing. But God, we, we're, we are content, but we are not satisfied. We were born to change the world. Father, I just pray that we wouldn't settle for good when you've called us to great. Amen.